All right. How many of you guys, uh, when you were a kid, at some point believed in Santa Claus? Raise your hand. Come on, admit it. Let's see, about 50%. Who still believes in Santa right now and is following him on Google Maps? Okay, all right, we got five people. Um, I remember defending Santa to like fourth grade, talking about the possibilities because, you know, there's time change and stuff like that, so he could travel the world 24 hours. Um, but I think like when I look back at my childhood, I just had a super and maybe overactive imagination. And what's sad about that is as I grow older, I get disappointed. Like when I went to um, uh, Disneyland and I went to Space Mountain, I literally thought I was traveling through space. I was, <laughs> I was very confused at why it wasn't really space when like my friends were ex- explaining to me. And then there's that rocket ride that goes around in circles right at the beginning of... Um, of Futureland, Tomorrowland, <laughs> big Disneyland fan here, and um, and I really wanted to go on that ride. Again, I was in elementary school trying to drag my counselor to come in to co- go with me, and I was, but I was really scared because I was thinking, how do I redock this this like aircraft? You know, <laughs> I was like excited to like explore, maybe swing by home, and then, like, look at the rest of Disneyland, but I was like, I don't know how to redock this thing, and it looks like a pretty, you know, there's just a pole there, and then I grew up, and obviously, it just goes around in a circle, and you can't even, like, you can't even, like, beat the person in front of you, because everyone's in a fixed position, um, and I wonder, as you have grown up, what had captured your imagination when you were a child? that started feeling really plain, you know, where Space Mountain is just this dark warehouse with fantastic lighting. Santa's not real. Sorry to five people who still believe. Or you can't actually detach from that, that, um, <laughs> that arm of, of the ride. And then when we think about superheroes as well, I loved the Power Rangers growing up, and I went to, um, it used to be, now it's Speed Zone, but it used to be Malibu Grand Play or something, and um, it was this big arcade, and the Power Rangers showed up, like, decked out, and I thought they were the real Power Rangers, and I was deathly afraid that Monster was going to step onto our arcade, you know, like, everyone's going to get really big, and um, and then I found out the Power Rangers weren't real, and that was really devastating, and so there's all these things that we kind of put our hopes and dreams into, or that we envision, and it's so much less than what we hoped for. Well, as I've been going through the book of Matthew and how many times it ties back to Old Testament prophecy, there's this sense of imagination and hope and, and awe that I've been standing in front of Scripture with that hasn't happened for a long time. Like, I, I love the prophets. I don't think I've ever said that in most of my Christian life, but I've been loving the prophets. And a lot of the Advent season for me has been reading um, Isaiah. So I'm going to share from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 17. But we're going to go from this one passage and continue to kind of blow it out uh, bigger and bigger. Because what happens in Isaiah, chapter 1 through 17, is that Isaiah is speaking about the impending 
Assyrian invasion, right? They were going to take over Jerusalem. Then Babylon was going to come in and put the rest of Israel into captivity. And that would be the 400 years of exile. So that's the first lens that Isaiah is looking through. And then the second lens was Jesus' first coming, where there's this great light that would come and, and kind of start releasing people from captivity. But then this kingdom would be established, this everlasting kingdom that Jesus, where Jesus is sitting on the throne and his kingdom would expand forever. And that's the third lens. And so when you're reading Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 17, what Isaiah does is he pushes these three points in time together, 700 BC, you know, 20, 30 AD, and then the future. And he pushes those three lenses, these three really um, amazing points in time, and then you see through it and you have one picture that he's trying to articulate to you from this passage. And that's what I love about the prophets. You're like, you're not just time traveling, you're pushing time together and it interlaces and you see them all through kind of this one lens of three time periods pressed together. And then what I also love about the prophets and really uh, these moments in scripture, I was asking Jesse, is there a film, and <laughs> you couldn't name one, where like, let's say there's a couple and their relationship in conflict and making up and falling in love and cheating on each other starts to, it, uh, their relationship becomes this microcosm of like world events, you know? That the world and everything, these catastrophic historical events revolve around this one couple in, in their relationship dynamic. Movie, Mitchell? No movie. Is there a movie like that? Let's make one. Okay, so, um, but like that happens in scripture, in real history. Um, these, these great moments where like Israel is being led out of slavery into the promised land and, and then Jesus kind of goes through that in his childhood, all representing us being enslaved and into sin and, Jesus, and God leading us into freedom, leading us into the new earth. Um, so all of a sudden I, I went from loving like these little passages and just kind of understanding the historical background, going real deep. I still love that. That's how we preach most weeks into these really broad strokes. And I think the prophets just take us there where they take thousands of years and presses it together and shows you one, one picture. It's, it's an amazing thing. I'm fascinated by it. It captures my imagination. I stand in awe. All right. So we're going to read this passage from Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 17. Uh, Again, pressed these three lenses or these three points in times pressed together. And this is, again, speaking about the Assyrian army coming in, but but overlacing it with with Jesus' first and second coming. Okay? Here we go. And um, I'm wondering if you want to close your eyes. I don't know. That's If you feel safe enough with the person next to you, go ahead and close your eyes. And I, I wonder if you were a Jewish person. This is how I've been reading the text. So I, I kind of like this time thing. But then I also want to sit in the seat of the Jewish reader and be like, what are my expectations of the Messiah? Because we kind of know too much in a way. But I wonder, man, if I was just a Jewish reader, I'm seeing the rebels of Jerusalem, 
um, the rebels of these cities, I've been, uh, my family's been taken captive. When I'm thinking about, about the Messiah, about my superhero, um, that has been foretold over and over again by these prophets, a superhero that I believe in, that I believe will be here. They're not just stories from a writer, but God's promising him. What am I expecting? What is the vision of him that I have? What does it mean in, in the most literal way for him to come and rescue uh, me and my people? All right. Nonetheless, there will be no gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, if this isn't superhero language, I don't know what is. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. To those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You will enlarge the nation and increase their joy. You will rejo- they will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his throne, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, if that first part sounded familiar, uh, Matthew does a throwback at the right of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. After the temptation, he goes out, starts his ministry, and he steps on the very land that was in rebels 700 years ago when Isaiah was prophesying, Zebulon and Naphtala. And Jesus is actually walking along that land, and, and it's to fulfill the prophet uh, Isaiah um, in those first verses of chapter 9. And then Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near, almost tying in the rest of chapter 9 in terms of his rule and reign. But I want to focus on verse 16, and I want to go big (laughs) and think about what it means for people who live in darkness to have seen a great light, what it means to live in a land of the shadow of death, but having this light that has dawned. And that's how Jesus refers to himself. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will, will never walk in darkness. I have the light of life. And when we think about light, um, what, we, what immediately comes across is this concept of vision, right? We have vision because of light entering into our eyes. If, if you have eyes but no light, it doesn't really matter. Light is what allows us uh, to see it fundamentally. 
And so Jesus is talking about him being the light of the world. And what does that mean? And what does that mean on a large scale? I think about creation and how vision was different then. You know, I was uh, speaking at the optometry school uh, right up the street, and I've been able to speak there quite a few times. And I was just kind of um, dreaming about vision in creation. Before, before mankind sinned, what did perfect vision look like? I wonder if you could stare at the sky and zoom in and see um, the Milky Way or be able to be able to look at Saturn and see the rings or, or explore the surface of the sun just through your eyes or whether you could look at mo- water molecules and watch them freeze in crystals form. I wonder if, if God gave us that kind of vision. But I think what the vision that God gave maybe even more profound than being able to zoom in or out is that our eyes were able to see this physical dimension interlaced with the spiritual dimension that Adam and Eve saw God face to face, that they knew where he was relationally and spatially, right? They, they could hide from him, meaning like they had proximity to where he was coming from. It said that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, that he could be with him, that he could see him. And then when you think about the fall, when sin entered the world, maybe one of the most devastating parts of our incapacity was that our physical vision separated from our spiritual vision. And all of a sudden, We couldn't see God anymore. We lost sight of him. And when he did show up, people would just weep. In Isaiah chapter 6, God shows up and he wants to die because he sees all of his sin. In seeing God's holiness and perfection, there's this immediate kind of retreat and, and wailing over his sin. And so in many ways, God separates for mercy In many ways, God hides himself in the tabernacle and the temple because we couldn't withstand his presence. Moses, the only man who sees God, right? God says, I show up to other prophets in dreams and visions, in illusions. But to my servant Moses, he got to see me. But even with Moses, he hid in a cave. God passed uh, like in front of him while holding holding his hand across the mouth of the cave. And then when he walked past, he let, Abraham, he let Moses see the glimpse of his back. That's as much as he gets without dying. And so as we lose the ability to see God, I think in many ways we lose our value. We aren't able to see our creator, so we forget how precious we are as his creations that he breathed into us. And then we find value in our friends, in our possessions, in our beauty. We forget who we're meant to be. The reflection of God, it's hard to understand how to reflect a being that we've lost sight of. And so we reflect um, all these other things. And we forget the value of others as well as we lose sight of God. You know, and we turn to all these idols and, and then the dramatic fall is, is capstoned in 
the second generation. We didn't go from eating forbidden fruit to crushing roly-polies. We had one brother kill another. A Cain take Abel into a field and kill him. And so sin and separation of God led to immediate physical death. And I think all of us experience that kind of darkness. As we lose sight of God, we, we examine the darkness in our own hearts and we start getting lost in our purpose, in our, in our value, in, in our evil. And that's what, so it's astounding as we think about Jesus walking into Galilee, these same lands that were torn up as rubble, and he's saying, I am the light of the world that I want to give you vision again. Life is more than what you see. And when you see me, you'll find meaning in all of these other things. And I think about it as having black and white vision, and all of a sudden, we see color for the first time. Um, Things start to make sense. We can tie one event to another Uh, My mom was saying one of the best things about being old is that you look back at your life and you see God's hand carry you through moments. You see him threading events together. And I think some of us who even as new Christians are seeing the life, uh, our life and life around us a little differently. I'm going to share four quick stories about the light of God entering into darkness. I met this guy in Singapore, um, and he became Christian, and I asked him how, and he said he used to be a gangster, and which is the, the story I always wanted. Um, the gangster become Christian story is like the best testimony ever. Um, and I, I said, what'd you get put in prison for? Because he went to prison for a while. And he said, chopping. And I was like, what's chopping? He's like, we can't carry guns in Singapore. They're illegal. So we just carry around machetes. And so we fight like with machetes and like you don't stab people, you chop them because they're longer. I was like, all right. And then he went to uh, prison. Oh, that's, he went to prison for a few years and he, was, he wasn't a good inmate. So he got put in solitary confinement where basically day in and day out, he's just by himself. And, and he said it like for multiple years. So he was going crazy, which is very understandable. And so he started creating imaginary friends, which again, very understandable. (laughs) You know, if I'm by myself with no one to talk to for days at a time, I probably start creating friends. And um, as he's starting to like make up these friends and starting to have conversation with them, someone in like, um, he has this slit in his door. People would drop off, uh, the prison guards would drop off food, water, one day someone dropped a Bible in there and he picked it up and he started reading it cover to cover and he said, I decided to give up my imaginary friends for Jesus. Started talking to him and instead of feeling alone, um, I felt his presence. He would speak to me through his word and, and I just, this great, if I can, light entered into his dark prison cell. He came out of prison, um, met a chef who was Christian, mentored him, gave him his first like couple hundred dollar uh, knife to help cut meat. And so he still chops, but he chops vegetables and meat now. 
Uh, Rudy uh, Ortiz, someone from our congregation, plays piano for us. He is part of the Latinos. It's this band that, um, you know, kind of old, old school now, but they got really big through this one song called When the Party's Over. And they're hardcore Christian, uh, Christian music, you know, Jesus is in there, the whole thing. But that, that song played on popular radio. It still plays on oldies stations. And it, it especially got a lot of traction with the Latino community. I'm not sure why. And, um, and so he still plays in concerts once in a while. They just wanted to play that one song. And, and after the concert, people will come up to him and tell him how this song changed their life. It's about, parties, getting drunk, getting high, but then the lights come down, and then what happens when the party's over? What is life really about? So this one lady tells him how she's heard the song many times, but that day she was on on the car uh, ready to drive off of a cliff to commit suicide. And the the song, when the party's over, plays, after the party's over, plays, and all of a sudden she starts hearing the lyrics. And um, she gives her life to Jesus. This other guy is in prison. It became like the, the lullaby of this prison. So every time like, they're about to put the prisoners to sleep, they play Rudy's song over, over the intercom. And, um, he, and this guy, he's in prison. He's pretty depressed. And then he hears the song, and he's heard it every night. But he said, that night, I really listened um, and I gave my life to Jesus. And, and he shared, he ended up going to the same church as the lead scene, singer in Rudy's band. And he's always wanted to sing on stage with them. So they actually used him for a few concerts to sing the song that brought him to Christ. My friend um, from China, he, he went to the best law school in China, grew up atheist, and um, went to the best law school in China. And it's very difficult to get into the number one, I mean, you're fighting, like, in the U.S., you got, like, 350 million people. In China, you have, like, 350 million college applications, you know? It's, like, a totally different game there. Uh, 1.5, 1.6 billion people, right? So he gets into the most prestigious uh, school in China. He goes to the most prestigious law firm in China. I mean, he's, like, this probably one of the smartest people I know, but he describes that time in his life like he's in this boat in darkness in the middle of the ocean the storm is raging and he thinks he's gonna die he has he has no direction um but he wants to go somewhere and he wants to live his friend invites him to church he sits in the front row he says the sermon's terrible but he this pastor ends asking him to receive Jesus. And he does. And all of a sudden, he sees the world in a totally different way. And then there's Andrew Starfield. Uh, he teaches uh, Fight Club for us and um, asked him if I, I could share a story as well, which he has before on stage. Um, he was, uh, he competed in national tournaments for Taekwondo. Is that right? And uh, was doing well in school and stuff. But then a girl broke his heart, which, you know, women. And he, he spiraled into depression, started using methamphetamines. Again, women. And um, running drugs uh, with his, like, big brother. And 
And he, they would get strung out. They would have these like parties where everyone's getting like super high um, at the apartment. But then his his like older brother invites this pastor to come in after everyone's super high, and he'll just like preach the gospel to everyone, and they'll kind of hear it. Uh, Andrew continues to go into depression, and one day he writes a note uh, talking about why he's committing suicide to his to his family, which. Having a son now, I just, I just, it's just really horrific. Um, he sets everything up to take his life. He's uh, in a room; it's completely dark, and he just starts weeping uh, in fetal position um, as he's staring down the last moments of his life. And as he's crying through the tears, um, there's this cross that forms uh, from the light of the window. And he has this crazy experience with God where he feels this great fear over his sin and darkness, but then this overwhelming sense of love um, penetrating his heart. And he says that in one moment, I went from a fetal position, like God picked me up and put me on my knees before him. And now he uh, helps us with worship and does fight club with us and is a brother. In all these ways, we think about what it means to see again. What it means to not um, construct our own purpose, to not construct our own value, but to find it in a creator because there's light, because things make sense and are illuminated and we can see him and invite him in. You know, the last part of human history, in Revelations, we, uh, Jesus comes to earth, he reclaims it, and kind of the last part of Isaiah chapter 9, his kingdom expands uh, forever. It's established, a forever kingdom. Jesus will rule the earth. And it says that the sun goes out because God himself is light, lighting the earth for his people. And I love how, again, physical light and vision is paired and, and brought, interlaced with spiritual vision again, um, embodied by God. We see him and we see the rest of the world in its fullness. John chapter 1, 3 through 5 talks about how through him all things were made. Without, without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, when we think about all life on earth coming from the sun, right? The sun is what allows plants to live, which allows animals to live, which allows us to live, because all I eat is animals. Um, God says, I'm that light that gives life to you. Life beyond our physical breath, our physical days, but eternal life, uh, purpose, meaning, um, being able to be his child. And, I, and as we think about Jesus coming to earth, there's so many ways uh, that the prophets put this together. And it, it's so much more than a manger. It's so much more than a baby. It's It's a hero who's come to remove 
the blinders of our eyes so that we can see again. And I hope that this Christmas, as you walk around the city and see these uh, lights hanging off of roofs that illuminate the darkness, you'll, you'll desire more of Christ. You know, there's more of Him for you to have. He wants to invade your darkness more than He has, and He wants you to see Him um, more. And so I know for me, man, there's so much. One thing I'd say to myself every day is that there's so much more of you to discover. There's so much more of you to have. And I hope that this Christmas you'll see God a little bit more clearly. Father, we love you. um, And some of us are discovering you. Some of us have lost sight of you and are wandering. And some of you, us, desire to see you more. You, um, you are the light of the world and you allow us to see um, that when we see you, we see purpose and value. We see future. Um, we see reasons for why we do what we do. And I hope that this longing um, to see you would grow and that as we walk with you, more there'd be more spotted color in the way that we uh, view life and death and work and friendship and play. And everything would kind of tie together with meaning. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't grope for purpose or for love or for um, life anymore. That we would be able to walk with vision because you light our world. You light this world. Um, thank you so much for everyone here. And yeah, would, would they see you more this season? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I would love for us to take communion together and uh, remember how Jesus came into the world and he died for us. He shed his blood for us. He broke his body for us so that we could see it again. And as we take communion today, would we remember his sacrifice? And would we ask him to forgive us? I think one of, the, one of the ways we can think about vision is when we sin and when we worship other things, it's like we're staring into the darkness. But when we say, God, forgive us, it's like we're turning around and we're walking towards him, the light. And the closer and more steps we take along this journey, the more of him we see and the more of everything else we see clearly as well. And so I hope that as we take communion today, we would um, turn and walk towards God. All right, let's take communion together.